Blog Talk Radio. That little jingle was furnished to a Metzian podcast by a friend of the show named Adam Spiegel. Just wanted to give a big shout out to him. Otherwise, good evening, Metsville and baseball fans everywhere. My name is Michael LeColent, otherwise known as the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, and I welcome you to another episode of a Metzian podcast. Uh, it's rather frightful outside, indeed, uh, northeast and rest of the country, for that matter, seems to be getting blasted with more snow. I was out there shoveling twice this evening. Uh, but it seems to be uh, nice and sunny down in Port St. Lucie. In the spirit of pitchers and catchers, uh, on tonight's docket, we'll be speaking about the starting rotation and the bullpen. Also, up for discussion are front office maneuverings and or a lack thereof. We'll debate that. This year's non-roster invitees and speculating who breaks north to Flushing and who starts the season at Syracuse. So without further ado, let's bring on uh, my partner and this evening's guest. I'll start hailing from Connecticut. You can catch him at CT Mets fan. Rich Sparago, and you can catch his writings at Metsmerized. Hey, Mike, how are you tonight? You know, it, it's always that interesting situation when um... – the weather is still winter-like here, but baseball is happening down in Florida, and uh, you know better days are ahead, right? So I'm doing well based on that. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, you know, when it comes down, it's always pretty, but then when the traffic goes through and the plows come, and you know, it always gets muddy and dirty, and you know, you just want to be gone with it. But when it falls, it's pretty. So I'll say that much for it. It's not a lot of fun uh, shoveling. But it is what it is. And I, I guess this is like the first uh, corner turn of the season, you know, spring training, opening day, and then uh, I guess midway point of the season and then September in the playoffs. What more else is there? Uh, without further ado, let's bring on this evening's guest. He is an analyst and reporter on the Sports Report, which airs Saturdays, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sportinarium.com. He has been reporting on the Mets organization since 2013 and is credentialed media covering what will now be known as Minor League Baseball's Low A Southeast League, which includes Mets affiliate, the St. Lucie Mets. Without further ado, I present to you Ernest Dove. Welcome to the show. Thank you for your time this evening. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. I look forward to it. And uh, I guess, yeah, unlike a lot of other people here, since I live in South Florida, it's pretty much 80s every day, but it technically is raining. If you think it's bad weather, technically. Uh, technically. So uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, this national pandemic from a, a Floridian's point of view. Oh, well, <laughs> I think we're pretty much the butt of all jokes as it is uh, ongoing permanently down here. So, I wouldn't even know where to start. 
But, I mean, there are <laughs> forms of organization going on. So, at least in my small corner of the neck of the woods, uh, things are going okay on my end, uh, thankfully, and hopefully to continue. That's interesting, and that's exactly what I was looking to solicit. So uh, I, I just had a little bit of fun with that. So, gentlemen, there's a lot to discuss. Uh, it's hard to pick a launching point, but let's start with the off season as we lead into spring training. And, and Rich, I'll go back to you. I'll start with you and this conflicting narrative of the off season that was. There's a lot of key misses on free agency. Uh, some have accused Sandy Alderson in his front office of shopping in the discount aisle again, premium shopping. Uh, at the same time, there's another fraction of fans who believe this is one of the best off seasons that the Mets have had in years. Nine free agent acquisitions, seven trade acquisitions, uh, etc. But there have been hit and misses, so let's pick it up with there before we delve a little deeper into this, Rich. Yeah, you know, it's dichotomous, Mike. First of all, let me say this. I think of the offseason as a success, player-wise. If everybody points to the Will Ponds being out, okay, fine. But player-wise, you know, I think it is a success for sure. Um, but it is dichotomous because, you know, they added good P- uh, Lindor, amazing addition, amazing, amazing addition. Carrasco, I feel, is, is primed for a comeback season. So great addition there. Trevor May, great addition, flame-throwing right-hander out of the bullpen. God only knows the bullpen needed help. Brian, uh, Brian, James McCann, you guys know how I felt about Ramos, an abomination. So James McCann is, is quantum leaps ahead of Ramos. So all that is very good. And then we'll get into non-roster invitees and, and you know, quote-unquote, um, under-the-radar people they, they brought in, such as uh, Almora, I think, was fairly under-the-radar. I think Pilar was a bit more, um, a bit more, you know, he's a more well-known name, certainly with a, with a longer track record. You have to wonder why they brought them both in, but we'll talk about that. Um, so, you know, they had a fine off season, but then you juxtapose the fact they whiffed on, apparently they were interested in Springer, didn't come, didn't come here. Okay. Um, they were, they made a ridiculous offer to Trevor Bauer. And I think, I and a lot of Met fans are happy he didn't take it. So they went heavily after him, didn't get him. I don't know that they ever really wanted Rail Muto. I, I wouldn't either, quite frankly, at the money he got in the years he got from the Phillies with his injury history. Um, so they didn't bring him in. Just today, they lose out on Trevor Rosenthal when they need another, they need another bullpen arm with Lugo down, and they lose out on him to the A's. And that, that one is like, what the heck? You know, you kind of look look around like, what? How did you lose him? Lose out on him to the A's? And so, but they did, and I get why. You know, he wanted to close. It might not have been about the money or anything like that. So, no, I, I don't think the Mets are shopping in the discount aisle. I do think they had a good off season, but it is a bit curious that they that they missed out on a lot of guys they were in on. So, and that that's my take. It's very interesting, Ernest. I pose the same question to you, but I'll sprinkle in a, a, a couple of more tidbits here. Uh, yes, they missed out on Brad Hatton. You know, they came into the season and they had needs. They had needs at center field. They had needs beyond the plate, starting pitching and the bullpen, and even at third base. But 
Sandy Alderson made a couple of moves before he even hired a general manager. Some of the moves were made while Jared Porter was still here, and some of the moves have been made since Zach Scott took over as interim GM. Uh, but this is still Sandy Alderson's front office, and you've heard the criticisms launched against him. They missed out on Brad Hand. They missed out on Trevor Rosenthal. They missed out on Jerry Springer, Bauer, and Real Muto. Now, if you want to break them down individually, yeah, I agree with Rich in that many of these can be explained away. I wasn't too particularly fond of giving Springer all that money for that length of time, et cetera, et cetera. So pick it up. I I have to also say, I mean, it was a, this was a successful off season as well, but it's a weird dynamic, you know, like that's been said anyway, as far as what the fans want, because, okay, we want to go all in. So that makes sense. So, but then at the same time, well, Lindor doesn't count because it's technically in the final year of his team control. Well, then which is it? You're either going all in, you're acquiring a superstar at the very bare minimum, top 15 in baseball, depending on how you want to rank players. Uh, but no, that's not good enough. So that's why it's a weird situation of both. But then, okay, well, we also want to win for years. The front office and the owner himself have already said since day one when they got here. Uh, so what else, would, what else do you want to see? They can come in and sign everybody for $30, $40 million a year for the next three to six years that are all in their 30s already. <laughs> and then that's still a version of going all in then now. And then what happens in a couple of years when you're complaining that you have your new Cano five or three years from now? Oh, yeah, this guy's all in their 30s. What are we going to do? Let's just be the Yankees and dump them and eat the $100 million. Like, I don't know what fans are going to want to see, uh, but it's that's why I enjoy the offseason season with some of the moves that they have made. Could they have made more? I mean, absolutely. I'm, I'm stuck going off rumors and reports about guys like Hand uh, and maybe Trevor Rosenthal. They, they wanted to be specific closers, which obviously there's specific reasons for that, even financially, with them only taking like one-year deals or so, which means they want to set themselves up for the next year. So everyone's got a price. And as far as I know, it's more about the fans and the media declaring the Mets in on everybody in the offseason. Maybe they never were. Uh, some of the stuff was being linked to them all the time, but doesn't mean they were in on every single guy because somebody said so. Right. So, Rich, expectations versus reality, where do fans sit? I think, you know, I think the majority of fans are happy with the off season, um, And I think most fans, and, and I think if you look at the, uh, the Pakoda projections, I think we talked about that briefly last week, that they had the Mets at 96 wins and, you know, the Mets are, um, I think the sixth best odds to win the world series in baseball, something like that, fifth or sixth. Um, so I think the fans think are clear that the team has improved, you know, the, the, um, the numbers, you know, people like to play with numbers, same, I, you know, the media thinks they've had a very good off season. I, I think they have, um, but there, you know, there are fans out there. There are, couple of very prominent ones of tv shows and stuff on twitter and stuff and on tv who say that it's a terrible off season you missed out on no you had three major free agents you missed every one of them uh you're getting outbid by the a's for rosenthal so if you want to point to stuff like that it's kind of like you know mike if you want to find something to complain about you'll find it but if you pull back and look at what this team is today versus what it was on the last day of the season in Washington when they got smoked 15-5 to last year. 
Um, much better ball club. It, I mean, period, full stop. It's a much better ball club. Could they? Did they miss out on some people? Yes. Would bringing some of those people in maybe have made them better? Yeah, maybe. But it's a much better ball club, and that's the objective. Well, let me continue playing contrarian and compound the issues. Ernest, we didn't mention Rich Hill. We didn't mention James. An interesting move, Justin Wilson signed with the Yankees. Why didn't he sign with the Mets? The Mets released, uh, released Brad Brock. Now, this all obviously all leads up to the bullpen and some of the transactions that they failed to make versus their needs and the transactions that they did make. Here we, here we are, the return of Jerry Blevins. They signed Aaron Loop. Uh, and now Seth Lugo is injured. So what exactly do you think is Sandy Alderson's plan insofar as this bullpen? Because it seems like we have a conflict of interest here. Or am I mistaken? Well, it's also one of those reactionary things. You know, something goes down. You see the report on Lugo. And, of course, everyone's like, well, that's it. Let's go ahead now and just sign all the best relievers left on the market, so we're good. Uh, but I, we don't really know what the plan was. And Sandy, you know, it's give or take. Uh, Sandy's been here before, obviously, uh, how he perceived the bullpen to be. But I've been saying this for a while anyway. They had Familia and Batances coming back regardless, uh, unless everyone, of course, is like, well, just, you know, I don't know, trade them for nothing, DFA them, release them. Uh, pay them their money as they're gone. That could have been an option, which obviously Sandy and Cohen probably weren't interested in. Maybe they were trying to trade them, but I just, it also would, again, it would seem reactionary to me to just be like, all right, we lost a guy. Let's replace him with the best guy. But then again, who are you replacing him with? Because the names we just discussed reportedly only want to be closers anyway. So the Mets, for whatever reason, they wanted to give it to Diaz absolutely no matter what. So he's the closer. So we, we aren't going to be in on certain guys just because we want them to. But, but now I just feel like I'm probably being defending of the Mets again, which is very weird. But I just, that's some of the things that I keep popping up in my head at this point. Rich, I think this bullpen situation is very confusing. Trevor May, an acquisition made back what, in December, he might very well be our best reliever at the moment. After him, Edwin Diaz, we're crossing our fingers that he proves effective this season. But after that, uh, this is something uh, just screaming anxiety all season long. Uh, we're not going to get into the 40-man roster options that the Mets have or the non-roster invitees, but so far, Ernest brought up Jerry's Familia and Dylan Patances. Just a couple of days ago, uh, we were hearing reports that Mets were looking to dump their salaries, and now all of a sudden, as he also says, Mets are in reactionary mode. They have no choice but to bring them back and, and incorporate them into the fold. And we haven't mentioned Robert Gesellman yet. Yeah. You know, that's kind of the bullpen is better because of Trevor May. Um, and it would have been nice to see some addition by subtraction, at least getting rid of Familia. Um, and if not both, Batantis and Familia. So if you think about it, if you work from the back end out, you know, you, I'm a Diaz believer, so um, I think he, he will be okay. I think he will be a solid closer. Um, so you have that. I, I'm okay with him. Um, 
May could close games if he has to. You know, there, there's an accomplished major league pitcher. So you've got that. Um, you know, Lugo going down, that does hurt. The thing about this bullpen, Mike, that scares me most is at this point, you've got one lefty. Um, I thought for sure they were going to bring Justin Wilson back and, and give them two lefties. Now, they did sign Montgomery, um, and he's, my, he's an answer to everybody's uh, favorite trivia question, who was on the mound when the Cubs won the World Series. No, everybody thinks it was Chapman. It wasn't. It was Montgomery. So, you know, he's a guy who um, maybe as a lefty, you know, he's an on-roster, but maybe he sneaks in there. So, so what you've got is I think you've got an okay back end. Um, then, you know, then it's kind of like a, it's kind of anybody's guess. You know, Batances has an amazing talent. Can he harness it this year? Well, we hope so. Lugo, let, let's pray that he's back in late April like they say he will be. So, um, and then there's a bunch of ifs, you know. If the Batances is Batances, if if Lugo comes back when he has to, you know, when when he's scheduled, I should say, well, now you've got a decent middle. And then for long relief, you know, you've got guys like, you know, Gesellman in the mix. I think uh, we're kind of over Gesellman at this point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the bullpen, I think, is better, but it remains a question mark. And I know we'll get to this later, but I think the bullpen is where you'll see some of these non-roster invitees, you know, having a better chance at making the club than in the position players. So, Ernest, do you have a scouting report on Aaron Loop, the uh, latest bullpen acquisition? Well, he's coming off a successful season. So that's one of the main things that I would know more than anything. I just, and again, there's a Jerry Blevins, but is he going to be better than Blevins? Probably. Uh, There's just more depth with certain players at this point. And we can't just get a Luigi anymore anyway. So, you know, what do you want to do? This is a guy who's coming off a successful season. Just because he's not worth 10 to $15 million this year, it uh, doesn't mean he wasn't a successful pickup, but you have a guy, he could pretty much, he's close to those nine strikeouts, you know, the, the strikeout per inning, and his whip was good last year. He's going to get guys out uh, righty or lefty. So it, it's just one of those things. He's not hand, he's not so-and-so. We're going to argue this, you know, to death, but he's been a successful guy as far as somewhat. I don't know. The numbers are going to be up and down for relievers anyway, but he's not going to be some overpowering 100-mile-an-hour lefty. But this is. But he also has certain years of control, right? So the Mets have gone in with a certain game plan here. They have other guys throughout the depth, throughout the 40-man, who all have years of control. But then they're picking up guys like Luke to fill in for now. It, this is the mix that they've decided to go with. I mean – can we be for or against it? Absolutely. But it's just, he's a guy coming off a successful year. They have Hefner. Uh, that's the guy they want to trust to do the coaching around here. So I just, to me, it's still a good move. It's not the move anyone wanted. They could have gone better, probably. I don't know. We're going to find out. Rich, we're at the point where we have to expand this conversation now. But first, I'll ask you if you have an, uh, an opinion on Aaron Loop. Otherwise, you know, we're going to start incorporating some of these 40-man roster guys and uh, seeing how they can be incorporated into the bullpen because, as Ernest brings up, there is a strategy here. We've moved away from players who no longer have minor league options towards players who still have remaining options. So, obviously, the highway between Syracuse and New York is going to be busy, busy with traffic going both ways. 
and that seems to be their plan. Uh, this is going to be a a forty man roster effort, it seems to me. But uh, any opinions on Aaron Loop first? Well, you know, you look at his numbers, and and clearly, you know, three and two record, first record doesn't really count for um, for as a reliever. Uh, last year, I'm talking about a 2.52 ERA, which is very good. Pitched in 24 games, um, you know, and as Ernest said, you know, very solid strikeout per nine was almost eight, you know, 7.9. Um, he doesn't really walk people, 1.4, which is fantastic. You know, walks per nine. So the guy looks solid. You know, he looks solid. But the thing is, the roles at this point that he's going to be asked to, to do on the Mets to, you know, to compete in as, as a Met, at this point, he might be the only lefty in the bullpen. So, you know, how will he perform under those circumstances? I, I don't. I don't know enough about how Tampa Bay used him. You know, did they use him as a middle middle of the game kind of a guy to come in, you know, and get a key lefty out? Or here, if the roster stays as we think it might, he's the guy who in the eighth inning is going to have to come in and get Freddie Freeman out. He's the guy who's going to have to get Bryce Harper out in game situations. You know, in, in a role like that, in an elevated role like that, when I don't believe that was his role in Tampa Bay, I think he was more of a complimentary piece. How will he perform in that kind of a in that kind of a situation? That to me, while his his peripheral numbers look really good, and I, I'm con, you know I have hope, he's going to be in an entirely different role as I see it. And so, we just have to hope those good peripheral numbers translate to that elevated role. Uh, agreed. Uh, for reference' sake, pitched in 24 games last season, 25 innings. Gave up only 17 hits, something which I pay attention to. Struck out 22 batters, walked four. His whip was below one, 0.840, and uh, an ERA of 2.52. Hits per nine innings pitched average of 6.1. Walks average of 1.4. Strikeout average of 7.9. Nice numbers, but I agree with you, Rich. His role is going to change, and we know when people come to New York City, uh, things are bound to change regardless. So a couple of names. I'll stay with you, Rich, and we're going to add some more names to the mix now. Drew Smith, Jacob Barnes, Stephen Tarpley, Sam McWilliams, and I'll throw out, throw out a couple of more. Yancy Diaz, Franklin uh, Kilom, Sean Reed Foley, Thomas Zapucky and Daniel Zamora. Some of these names are familiar to us. Some of them not so much, but they're all pitchers and somehow, some way, look to figure into the Mets bullpen and perhaps spot starting uh, duties. So, what say you? Well, you're right, Mike. They're all over the place. Like you know, yeah, you you they come from all different. <laughs> all different, you know, walks of life, so to speak. You know, Stephen Tarpley is a guy, a former Yankee, you must remember. Um, certainly, you know, certainly seems like he can get people out. I believe he's 25, 20, he's trying to pull his numbers up here. Um, 25, 26 years old, lefty, you know, so there's certainly some hope there. Um, and there's certainly some hope that he could turn into something. He, of the names that you mentioned, I think he might be the one where, you know, if you look at his strikeout per, per nine innings, he's striking out nine guys per nine innings. His walks are high, uh, 6.5 per nine. Oh, that was last year. Over his career, 11.7 strikeouts per nine. I'll take that any day of the week. 
but also 5.8 walks per nine. So Tarpley, you know, is probably the most, one of the more accomplished people that you've mentioned. And I think he might have a shot as another lefty in the bullpen. Um, so there's, there's Tarpley. Then you have the other side of the, of the coin where you, the other side of the equation, we have a guy like Zamora. Well, you know, he's been around. He's clearly a one out kind of a guy, but he hasn't been all that effective. Um, you know, we know him as Mets, as Mets fans. He's been up and down the last couple of years. So they have him. They, what they have, uh, McWilliams is another guy who's pretty interesting, another, another former Ray. Um, maybe he might be someone who, who might have a shot as well. So they're clearly, you know, going with that strategy of, all right, we, we kind of know who our anchor people are going to be, Lugo and Diaz um, and probably Luke. Uh, but then it's a bunch of, you know, we have a bunch of names. They're going to fight it out for one or two spots. Tarpley is somebody that, uh, that again, I, um, I think has a shot. Um, some of these other guys like Montgomery as a lefty, certainly a lot of major league credibility there. So maybe, maybe him, I, as you can see, I'm focusing on the left-handed arms that are needed. Uh, Keep your eye on Tommy Hunter. Tommy Hunter is a guy that they wanted two off seasons ago and they, he spurned them for the Phillies. And well, lo and behold, he needs a job and he's in Mets camp now as a non-roster invitee. You know, he's one of those guys that runs in from the bullpen, kind of like a Turk Wendell kind of a guy, a little bit offbeat kind of a guy. So keep your eye on him too. So I'm going to focus on those guys. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on Williams, um, on Tarpley and on Tommy Hunter for the reason being they have major league track records. And I think in roles like that, the Mets might prioritize guys like that, as opposed to, you know, really young guys to just sit out, sit out there in the bullpen and come in and get a key out here and there. Ernest, before you take it away, I think it's worth mentioning that the Mets are actually spending money on their minor league uh, team in Syracuse. Some of these contracts, you know, are going to benefit the Mets and both Syracuse. Uh, Take it away, sir. Well, yeah, again, it's one of those things as well. You're, you're talking about a, a really good upper minors lineup of sorts, uh, which is the depth that you need. I mean, obviously we're worried about the bullpen, which can kind of speak for itself for a lot of teams throughout Major League Baseball as far as the guys pretty much penciled or penned in to their, uh, to their pen. But some of the guys, even we're not even talking enough about Miguel Castro, who throws the upper 90s. Uh, he's a really talented pitcher. I know me, I'm the prospect hugger. I was a little little sad to lose Kevin Smith in that deal. But, I mean, it's my understanding. The Orioles, from what I was told, they still really liked Castro to begin with. They just made a decision to pick up Kevin Smith. They probably have uh, some different roles in mind for him in Baltimore. But that's a really good pitcher that he could be. Uh, but, again, now we're stuck doing the if thing. Um, but it's also about the roles like we're talking about. The Mets, to me, over the years, they haven't really been doing this. Maybe teams, other teams have been doing it, uh, having certain guys start in the bullpen and then maybe end up in the rotations later, uh, more flexible guys. The Mets might be putting themselves in these positions by overpaying, actually, for some of these contracts like the McWilliams. Uh, we still have Drew Smith, who seems like he's been around 10 years now since the Duda trade. Uh, he's another hard-throwing guy who will get you a strikeout per inning. Uh, one of the interesting ones is always going to be Thomas Zabuki to me as the prospect guy following him since St. Lucie. Um, I saw him as a guy who he was going to throw up to, they had him clocked up to like 97, uh, even as 2019 in low A uh, before certain things were going up and down with him. We feel like we haven't heard from him in a while. So 
the question now is for someone like a Sapuki, especially with missing all this time, the Tommy John surgery, then he comes back, then there's no season. So it might be pretty interesting depending on how they want to work him into the lineup one way or another for him to make a debut, which again, it'll almost, it'll seem rushed at this point because of the lost season. But if he has his velocity back, his breaking ball is ridiculous. So when you have that good of a breaking ball, He's a guy you have to consider looking into if he's forced into some form of role. And then, yeah, Franklin Killamay was a guy who had such electric stuff. Again, here we go with the ifs. He struggled in some of the times he came in. Some of his appearances were really good. The others weren't. There's always command issues, it seems like, with every reliever in baseball. So, But just the talent overall between Syracuse and the Mets, at least when they're kind of funneling in guys this year, it's not going to be guys where we're talking about their indie ball career or we're talking about where they were like last week before they were in professional baseball again. So at least on that end, and even guys like a, a Joey Lucchese, I mean, is he a starter? Is he a reliever? Again, it's just about the options. I'm just, it doesn't mean I'm super excited about it. We'd love to hear more major names at this point, but if you have to dip into it, especially in a weird season like this, which will hopefully be successful, at least they're dipping into true upper minors, team-controlled, 40-man rostered guys who are able to come in already in 2021 and not get scared you're calling up some guy from AA again this year. All right, gentlemen, if you don't mind, I'm going to feel the call. Let's see what this caller has to say, ask, or comment on. One second. Caller calling from 520. Identify yourself. Caller going once. Caller from 520. Area code going twice. Caller going three times. Done. All right, gentlemen. Folks, you've been listening to a Metsian podcast for the first half hour, and our guest this evening is Ernest Dove. Sir, I would ask you, why don't you... uh? delve into your background what have you done in the past and what led you up to your current uh endeavor in covering saint lucy i was just um one of those things back in 2013 uh i ended up responding to a message to begin my 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 blogging career at that point started out at max mets uh started blogging about it and then by about 2015 or so, I was able to start traveling uh, to the games in St. Lucie. So I wanted to be more specific. It was kind of fun and exciting to start watching around for the minor league games. So about 2015, I started really spending more time covering the minor league team, specifically them, and also being the minors junkie and talk about all the guys throughout the minors. And then from there, moving on to to Mets minors and Mets Marized, uh, where I spent a few years uh, writing and providing content for them. And it's gotten to the point where even from 2019, uh, with the media credentials covering basically the, the Florida State League itself, uh, mostly in St. Lucie, but also Roger Dean Stadium, uh, to be able to have access to cover the games there. And then it's just trying to do my best, uh, report on the info, really lucky, honestly, to build relationships with some of the players and especially their family members. You know, the minor league guys, you know, we could talk forever about what they actually earn, what they make. Uh, so it's always been a pleasure of mine now for these years to cover the players, promote the players, 
even to the point of sending pictures and videos. Uh, some of the games in the Florida State League are in A-ball. They're not televised, even in the those uh, packages for TV. So my background at this point is from blogging, and then I made a connection uh, with Thomas Bryce at the Sports Report, moved on to do more of, you know, on-air type stuff, uh, working on set, some of the shows on SoundCloud. And then in the past year or two, we were picked up uh, by an online radio station for Sportinarium. So now at this point, it's been an awesome connection with Sportinarium. Uh, they do all sports all over the world. They're even based out of the United Kingdom. Uh, so it's really exciting. They're known for boxing. Uh, but I'm trying to give more of the baseball spin to it at this point. And that's why going into 2021, the goal is to get the, uh, be part of the media again uh, for the minor league season and pretty much cover, you know, as much minors as possible and uh, follow the guys up uh, through the ranks. Let's stay on minors for a second because we still have a couple of more names to discuss, the non-roster invitees. And, and Rich mentioned one of them, Tommy Hunter, and there's a couple of more that, uh, that are worth delving into. Uh, but first, the minor leagues. Let's cover that for a second. Uh, obviously, everything's been reconfigured in Lord Manfred's New World Order. Uh, just your general opinions. Do you think that some of these minor leagues are going to get their old historic names back, considering that in certain situations the majority of the teams are returning uh, and, and things of that nature? Uh, we'll start the conversation lightly, and I guess we'll have more more questions as we go along. Oh, you want it to be for me with the names? Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Not, it's, boy, it's also weird that with everything that's happened uh, with baseball doing all these reconfiguring and everything else going on. Uh, but again, with everyone signing these agreements and all these things signed for all the teams that are left at this point, it would be kind of cool to see what else they can get Uh to, you know, have the fans, you always want to have the fans, bring the fans back. There's concerns about the some of the affiliates that have had to switch over to other things now, going into these more amateur balls and everything else. So it would be a good idea to come up with something. You've got to have it more fan-friendly. Uh, if they want to change, you know, some of the other old-school names, that would seem like a lot of fun. If you want to take more control over it, especially at the minor league level, then MLB, of course, I hope you're stepping up, right? We talked about – we know there's been some raises now. There been, some of the recent reports are going to get higher salaries for the players. Is that going to carry over to everyone else? What about the minor league coaches, all the staffs, everyone at the stadiums? And even in the branding of all these affiliates now going forward, if they're going to have the concrete more support now through MLB, what, what's that also going to entail? It would be pretty exciting uh, if they're going to invest so much more into this. Uh, hopefully it even goes into more fun things like that. But you know, the ballparks themselves are already fun as it is. Some of these stadiums are pretty amazing. Even with this big crowd, small crowd, it's, a, it's such an interesting environment uh, in minor league baseball. So that's why it was kind of sad to see some of these local areas having to switch it out. They're trying to adjust at this point. Uh, but – it would be kind of cool to see what else MLB can do right now uh, to help out, especially in the minors, and change it and branding. I don't know. What, what else do you think they can do? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on it? How could they even make it even better at this point? Well, I think it's going to be a work in progress. Uh, but I, I just find it a little ponderous that all of a sudden, you know, names like the Pacific Coast League, the Texas League, uh, the Carolina League, et cetera, you know, they've – 
abruptly been deleted from our vocabulary, and we're left with these uh, generic, bland, uh, sterile regional names of divisions. Uh, I think they need to do better. I think they might do better, but they really need to think this out. Some things uh, I don't think they thought out at all. Uh, so, uh, and the unbalanced schedules, you take the AAA level, for, for instance, where you have uh, 20 teams east of the Mississippi and only 10 teams west of the Mississippi. Uh, you think those teams in the west aren't going to get tired of playing each other, whereas uh, players in, 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 you know, this sector of the United States are going to benefit from more competition. I don't think they really thought things like that out. Uh, but we'll take a second pass around this. In the meantime, I just want to hand the floor to Rich. I know he's got questions. So, Ernest, you know, again, thank you for joining us. Um, but I want to tap into your knowledge of the Mets minor league system. Um, what I fan is I see, you know, the, the Mets farm system was just ranked. They're ranked 23rd in one um, in one particular ranking. And then I believe they were they were a little – like I saw 24 maybe in 21. So I saw three rankings and they were anywhere from, you know, the low twenties to pushing the mid twenties, which is not good. You know, they're in the bottom third of major league baseball in terms of their, their minor league system, no matter who you're talking to. So as a fan and as our listeners are fans, if you could give us a couple of reasons why you might be excited about the minor league system, a couple of players to keep our eyes on who, you know, who maybe while we're continuing to hear that the minor league system, yes, they brought in um, they brought in a couple of players recently, and you know, Khalil Lee, and and to try to give a little more talent down there, but this talent is still lacking. It's clear. But give us, if you can, a couple of players that you've had your eye on, reasons to be excited about the Mets minor league system that we're just not seeing in the mainstream media. Well, that's I mean one of the tougher things, and I know it's it's being talked about a lot as well. And even some of the bigger, you know, ranking and national guys who do this, it, the Mets, you know, well, thank you, Brody, for, you know, giving away a lot of the upper minors guys. So a lot of the name brand guys and even guys who are ranked in MLB's top 100 prospect list, they started getting traded, traded away. So what we have right now is the thing, the reason why the system's going to be ranked again really low is because when you go into the top 10 or the consensus top 10, in the Mets farm system, you're basically talking about a whole lot of teenagers uh, or maybe at least 2021. A lot of people know about Ronnie Mauricio, uh, Alvarez, who's still very young, by the way, but you're getting into all these kind of first round high school draft picks that just got picked. And then they had a lost season. So this is what we've been running into. Um, And then taking the flyers on someone like a JT Ginn who, who wouldn't even have played anyway last year. Uh, So, that's, it's kind of like the problem is the Mets farm system now, it's, it's going to be more top-heavy in the teenagers. They've all been in the low minors, the high international free agent money. They've been signing some pretty good guys for international free agent monies. You have some of these athletes. I've been talking about them for years. A guy like Shervin Newton, who's been like one of those super athletes. We're trying to see, is he ever going to put it together offensively? Uh, but there are some names out there. Even in camp right now, one guy I've been talking about is Marcel Renteria. He's not on anybody's top 20 list, but he's a right-handed pitcher who transitioned from starter to reliever a couple of years ago. Uh, he went through the motions, fighting through A-ball, and now all of a sudden through the, 
behind the scenes with everyone, he's throwing 96, 97, 98. He was touching almost 99 in some of those facilities and the training facilities using analytics. And that's one thing that's really good for the Mets farm system in general right now is that even from what I was hearing from certain coaches and coordinators in the minor league level, uh, the, the new owner, Cohen, was telling them he was going to provide for them. And he's been stepping up and doing that. And even national reporters are talking about it. He's providing more resources. He's providing them more that they need. So that's why, I, for me as a minors guy, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, but it's just a matter of, okay, who do we look at now? Who's going to help the team now? Um, can a Marcel Renteria be squeezed into the roster? Like I said, Thomas Sapuki, he had some lights out, you know, stuff. Uh, just before Tommy John surgery. So he would have been those guys. We would have been easily talking about him replacing Mats this whole time without Tommy John. So, but, there's, but there's still names out there. And Matthew Allen's going to be the top name at this point. I keep hearing more and more good things about him. Even from the time of the draft year in the instructional league, I was told he's an outstanding guy, really hard worker, and he's a professional. And he's been that way since he's been here. So, there are names to look forward to, but again, the issue is, or the issue, if you want to call it an issue, all the top guys at this point are 18 and 20 years old. So we're going to have to wait on them, which again now fully explains what Sandy and the front office is doing here, loading up on all these team control kind of swinger guys between AAA and the majors because we don't have, I won't mention that guy who's with the Mariners. So we don't have a player like no. that who's going to be like a top ranked guy waiting in AAA or even breaking camp. The Mets are just not – they're not full of those guys. But I know one guy, too, another right-handed pitcher, Jose Buto, I've been talking about him for about two years now, and he just started showing up on the national kind of radar recently as well. He's a guy not enough people are talking about as a potential, you know, legit arm. Uh, maybe it's one of those things where he's not six foot five, so you're not, they're not giving him enough credit as a pitcher. But I was told even in low A – his stuff was pretty incredible. Uh, he was pretty intimidating around the league, and uh, other players felt that way, and opposing teams were not happy to face him. So th there are arms out there. They just they don't get talked about enough, um, I guess, except by people like me who are going to try to blow it up as much as possible. But we just, we're going to keep fighting through this, and now all we, get, we have to wake this out. There's nothing we can do but have a 2021 minor league season because these guys like the Alvarez, even back to Mauricio, Vientos and Beatty, who two guys who were listed as third basemen, are they going to be able to stick there? That's going to be huge. I've had a lot of information. I know certain things about them. Uh, can they stick defensively? Uh, there's even other guys for a Jalen Palmer, who's another one of those super athletes at this point, like a Newton. Uh, can Palmer, can he even transition to the outfield? He's randomly done that recently, uh, even in camp access. So, the Mets have a lot of ifs again in the system because of how young they are, and they some of these guys haven't even played full season ball. They just have to go through it, and that's why we're kind of stuck in this holding pattern. But if you were to ask me this time next year, will the Mets be a top ten farm system? There's a chance that the if the answer is absolutely yes. Waiting out this season to actually happen for these eighteen to twenty year olds, will it happen? I I sure hope so. Two more names I think are worth mentioning, uh, one of which is John Ishree Vargas, who just came off an MVP season for the Puerto Rican League and uh, had himself a stellar winter playoff and Caribbean series. Uh, outfield, being that we're talking about that guy in Seattle. And the other one is the recent acquisition of Khalil Lee, 
Uh, any opinions about either? Well, That's I mean, what we have a couple of speed demons there, um, and I know for Lee, it's he was a, still a top-ranked prospect. Um, we could point to the strikeouts, but that apparently is the game of baseball these days. Do, do we even throw out strikeouts at this point? I mean, I don't even know. Uh, but, but, but it's also again, this is one of those guys. Also, how you acquired him, right? So, it for the moves that were made, and he's kind of flipping other prospects anyway, even through the Mats deal to acquire someone like Lee as the depth in the outfield. Because again, now the Mets outfield, we could sit here. Even the Tebow jokes are going to start happening because the Mets <laughs> did not have the upper minors depth in the outfield. We and that that's something that's been occurring. And again, it had to be addressed in the off season. And you can't just sign a bunch of major league guys and say, Hey, we're going to stash you in Syracuse. Is that okay with you? I mean, that's not going to happen. Uh, so a guy like Lee, if you could have someone like him, who's a projected to be a guy with power, he's going to have power and speed. If he meets some of his potential as well, he doesn't have to show up in camp right now and be a superstar. So, and then for Fargus, I mean, these guys are going to be good guys that you need, at least in AAA. And if they get called up, you're not like, oh, my God, what's this guy's name? Where is he from? Again, what indie ball team was he? Or is he 37 years old and the Mets kind of had him in, their, in camp and they kept him? I mean, this is what the front office has been doing through the off season. So that's why, again, these are good options. Um, there might be some other complete sleeper guys, depending on how they do. Uh, some of the some of the outfielders as well. Um, I've had some of my favorites over the years, and there's guys who have certain tools. Even like a Quinn Brody, when I covered him in the minors, he's one of those super strong arms as a lefty throwing arm who can play all three three outfield positions. But it's a matter of the hitting. Can the doubles translate to upper levels uh, without certain power? Uh, but just guys like Lee, and I mean, these are good options to have. Again, they're good options. We're talking about even minor league depth. We're not talking about a guy to replace Nimmo and Conforto and everything else. So I still like what they have in those guys if they are needed because they're going to be different than some of the names that we have seen in the last couple of years, even in the outfield. We've seen certain guys over the years, oh, we called up this guy, and you never hear from them again. So they're trying to have a different approach this time. So I'd rather have prospects like Lee and certain speed demons and everything else than perhaps what we've been seeing in Mets uniforms in the last few years. Last matter, I'll ask you to please clarify for us with regards to the minor leagues, low A and high A. Uh, how are these teams going to be comprised? You know, give us some insight into that. The low A squad, I would imagine they're going to be comprised of players from Kingsport and Columbia and high A. We're going to see the graduates from St. Uh, excuse me. Uh, players who were not promoted to double A, uh, people who were staying behind in high A ball, and a majority of returning Brooklyn players. Am I assuming correctly? Well, that, I mean, it's, it's just really weird at this point because of the lost season. Um, when I've, I've talked to a couple of the players, you know, I, there are certain things where they can see it, even through some of the coaches and some of the projections that they have for players. I can see a certain groups of guys technically now having to jump a level. So the guys that you may have last seen in low A, I mean, I, I have heard you may be seeing some of those guys show up in Binghamton. Uh, it's just 
it's, but it's going to be like who? What, can a guy like Mauricio just start in Double A? Possibly. Uh, there's going to be certain guys in certain roles. I'm a favorite of a guy, uh, Bryce Hutchinson, who's been a tweener between starter and reliever. Uh, I've been joking anyway. He's been a version of like a Lugo 2.0, not necessarily in the specific stuff, but in a role that he can play as a multi-inning guy. Can I see a guy like Bryce Hutchinson? You last saw him in low A in 2019. I can see him in a double-A bullpen uh, in 2021. I just don't know about some of the in-between guys, though. Like I've been saying, guys like Vientos, Beatty, uh, does one go to double-A? Does one kind of at least start the season in the, in the class high-A in Brooklyn? Do they even fa- factor in weather again? There were, there were things about that, right? Even with guys like Rosario, it was like, hey, why don't we keep him in South Florida for some nice 80 degrees for a month? Uh, to kind of get certain trainings at the spring site anyway and facility. I'm just not really sure. Because if you go online, there's certain guys anyway that are – they've been jumped up a couple of levels as far as certain rosters, but that stuff can always be changed. It's just it's hard to say because so many guys are so young. Can Beatty just show up what? I mean, he has a certain age coming out of high school, but it doesn't mean they're going to just jump him right to double A already without playing certain full seasons. So I can see – I can still see a lot of guys kind of getting held back of sorts, at least for the first month or so. But now even that's weird because even the seasons are starting between April and May. So that could be one of those things too. I remember years ago, like Rosario, he's a guy that they would shove in to like a low A level. And then when he struggled, he started, he, they had him back in Brooklyn uh, when he was coming up. I can see certain guys. We may, maybe we'll even be surprised by certain names even showing up possibly in you know AAA because their, their seasons are going to start sooner. So we're going to have to keep an eye out for that. We may see a couple of some top prospects at a high level nobody expected because they may only be there for like the month before the lower levels in the A-ball seasons begin. I mean, that could be, a, that could be something that's going to happen. This is going to be fascinating. Uh, on behalf of Sam, him and I are excited as schedules are being published uh, he and I are excited uh, here in Brooklyn. That's my local interest. You know, the first baseball game played by a Brooklyn team will be played for the first time since 1957 in April. So we're very excited about that, and I'm hoping that I can attend. We'll see what the protocols are then. Rich, do you have any outstanding issues with regards to the minor leagues? No, I. Uh, the only thing I would say is I saw the schedules today too, and I was going to comment on what you said, Ernest, which is, the triple-A seasons are starting in early April, but the, but the uh, double-A and single-A are starting in May. And uh, they're that going in my question. Yeah, September 19th I saw. Um, for uh, There's a double-A team here in Connecticut, uh, and I was looking at their schedule. And, um, and I think they start May 4th and they go to September 19th. And, you know, you explained, you know, that guys might start in AAA, then move down to get some extra, and that makes complete sense, you know, a month later when, when the, the uh, AA season starts. But what am I missing? Like, why is this happening? <laughs> why why is, are AA and single-A starting May 11th, I think, maybe somewhere around there, and going until September 19th? Because those seasons have always ended Labor Day weekend, and they're ending two weeks later. So is it the hope that fans can attend and it's a financial thing? I'm just curious. I don't even – God only knows at this point some of the workings. Uh, 
for some of this stuff going on in minor league baseball. I know some of the guys are already been worried about it. You're already losing a season, and now you're going to be starting even a month later. Uh, but so maybe maybe it is one of those things where we want to kind of slow things down uh, at the minor league levels and the kind of the, even down to the umpires and whatever kind of logistics that they have probably at this point. So obviously it makes sense we're going to have to need the AAA and the highest level of the minors to kind of – you have to coincide with the majors in case you're needed. Uh, I mean, there's versions of taxi squads like they attempted last year. But it does kind of seem like, you know what, they're going to start things a little bit slower for the lower levels to kind of get things quietly going, confirm the actual logistics and how they're going to handle everything. Because even for the minor leagues, again, some of these guys, they, they're bunking up five, six guys in a room in the low minors. So – uh, it's just I know it's a tough gig out there. Uh, even some of the even staffs. I mean, you can have guys rooming with all kind of people in the low minors. But I mean, that would be I don't have any you know confirmation on the exact reasoning for it. I just feel like the upper minors are going to have to coincide at AAA level, and everyone else they're probably just hoping that it's going to magically just look a little bit better uh, a month later. So we'll see how it is. I mean, hopefully if they could all stick around anyway at the camps. I mean, what are they going to do? Are they going to have versions of extended spring and have everybody just kind of hanging around again uh, when the major leaguers leave, have the low minors guys in there? Um, I'll try to, you know, stay in tune of what's going to be happening with all the low minors guys to see when they're going to be asked to start showing up. Thank all right, guys. I got three, I got three more items on uh, this evening's docket. Rich, we'll start with the contract. Signed by a Fernando Tatis Jr., a mega deal with the Padres, and how that's going to impact the negotiations between the Mets and Francisco Lindor. Take it away. Wow. Um, That is going to have an impact. I'll tell you what. You know, uh, Tatis is shortstop. Lindor is shortstop. Lindor is more accomplished because he's been around longer. Um, So $340 million for 14 years for Tatis. Lindor is going to be in that neighborhood, folks. Um, you know, maybe it's not 14 years. Maybe it's 10. Maybe it's not uh, the AAV, the same AAV, but it's going to be close. It, it really, you think about this, right? The Mets parted with Rosario, whom I've always liked. I know people don't like him. I do. I always thought he had, He. I think he will come around. Um, and I'm a huge Jimenez fan. And so they parted, you know, you have to give to get. So I, okay, you got Lindor back, got Carrasco back. Okay. Um, but the thing I've said on this podcast ever since that trade was made, and, and, and we all say it, that deal only makes sense for the Mets if they sign Lindor. Because if you gave away Rosario and Jimenez for one year of Lindor, you have huge egg on your face and you're minus two really good players. So, okay, fine. Sign Lindor to make the, make the deal resonate. Well, with the bar that has been set, and some are saying Lindor will get more, some are saying the same, some are saying a little bit less, who cares? It's a ton of money, and it's a long contract, and that is what Lindor will get. He will be in that neighborhood somewhere. The Mets' job now just got harder. It just took that trade where a big part of it was signing Lindor and made signing Lindor a lot harder. They're going to have to commit a boatload of money to this guy. Um, we know Sandy doesn't like to do that. The man is who he is. You know, he didn't want to sign right to the long contract. He's just not that kind of a guy. Um, so, oh, 
that was when that down with the Padres and Tatis, you were feeling the ripples in Queens. It's going to have a big impact on what the Mets do. And maybe stated differently, what the Mets need to do and how much pain they're going to feel in the process of doing it. So I think it had a big impact. Ernest, you answer the question any which way you want, but I will phrase part B to that question this way. Uh, We know the Mets got played with George Springer and Bauer. Uh, That brings up their tactics, so to say. Brian Cashman has a tactic. He has a plan. And he tells players, go find your market and then come back to me. Uh, Tatis Jr. was just one of several shortstops that was going to be available after the season in next year's free agency period. So should the Mets tell Lindor, go seek your market and then come back to us? I mean, that that doesn't seem like it would be a very smart move, but yeah. And then even some of the information that we were getting through the winter – it kind of sounded like, and even like a Sandy was even alluding to it uh, after the deal was made. It was like, well, you know, we we did have a lot of kind of big moves, you know, in the pipeline, and we were working towards stuff. But then when the Lindor thing became back available and put back on the hot burner and everything, they decided to go for it. So I think what he was also saying, too, is like, hey, this wasn't even a backup plan. Like, this was a monster one, and we kind of were able to get back to it. So, yeah, like if they don't re-sign him because you have Lindor and Conforto and we're not even talking about Noah Syndergaard. So it's what is the strategy going to be for Sandy? Like we like it's just been said, he's not the kind of guy that seems to want to give anyone more than like four years. So that's going to have to change. Um, does just does having Cohen now change that? Can he go ahead and at least, you know, open the vault? for some of the core players now going forward? Because, yeah, even some of the younger guys and the outfielder that was also traded in that deal has some tools. So they're giving away a whole lot of commodity and assets for one year of Lindor and a really good pitcher for about two years. So you you can't say, well, you have to do it no matter what. And, again, it might also be that $300 million range. But, yeah, what do you do? If you don't sign and extend Lindor and if you don't extend Conforto, and you have to assume Noah Syndergaard is probably going to test the market no matter what happens. Uh, just, but maybe with Cohen's money, finally, everyone keeps saying, we, we, well, we want to spend his money. We want to spend his money. And if the rumors are true anyway, they were going to give a whole kinds of money to Bauer. So why not assume that they're going to go ahead and lock these guys up? And that was the plan all along. Like with the other guys, they missed out on, missed out on, or that trade wasn't fully pursued, and then all of a sudden the Lindor trade happens. So maybe, again, the long-term plan quietly is we're going to sit down with Boris, with Conforto, we're, we're going to lock these deals up, and everyone's going to see later. And I guess knowing Sandy, he'll show up in the press conference with a certain smirk on his face because he's going he's gonna to quietly and sarcastically have something to say about it if that were to happen, and you know it. We are now joined by our president of Metsian Podcast Operations, Sam Maxwell. Sam, on your behalf, uh, we will not. Brooklyn will not be playing baseball in April this season. The schedules are out. Their season won't start till May, so we're just going to have to wait. Uh, in the me- in the meantime, we're talking about the contract signed by 
Fernando Tatis Jr. and the impact that contract will have on the Lindor negotiations. Well, uh, first of all, hello, everyone. Uh, Ernest, nice to audibly meet you. Thank you for joining us tonight. And uh, to go right into it in terms of the contract stuff, I think you, Mike, you, you were saying about the idea of forming the market Although everybody's kind of bringing up that Tatis Jr. has kind of done that for the Mets. Um, in terms of, you know, like uh, Ernest just said, you know, they save a lot of money not going out, out in the Bauer. And what's funny is I was just actually having this conversation with a Yankee fan in my car a second ago about the, that, that you know, basically talking about how some people think that just because they didn't get Springer, they didn't get Bauer, uh, they didn't get some of these big-name free agents that were all the way at the top of the list, uh, that somehow it was just the, the same as a Wilpon offseason. And, uh, you know, when was the last time the Wilpons were the second team mentioned by the end, less than 24 hours before these players signed? Uh, that just didn't happen along with a, a wide array of other things that happened this offseason that were not Wilponian, if you will. Uh, but But one of the things that that Cohen said at the beginning of it, and I think that's one of the reasons why he probably brought Sandy Alderson in, was the idea that we're not going to be spending like drunken sailors. Springer, getting Bauer, getting some of these names just because they're names and because they were at the top of the free agent list would have been spending like drunken sailors. Maybe I'm an apologist here, uh, but I think the money will certainly be better spent on, you know, Lindor is not necessarily somebody that we – we uh, uh, can say is is a guarantee to perform uh, for the Mets because we haven't seen him perform for the Mets. But Conforto, we know, has performed many times with the Mets. I think that's going to be a harder one because of Boris, uh, but I still think that one way or another, if Conforto reaches out saying that he would like to negotiate a long-term contract with the Mets uh, before anybody else can uh, can play – I think then Boris will have no choice, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be an interesting, it's going to be an interesting few weeks before the games get started. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how all these contract extensions go because both Lindor and Conforto have uh, uh, stated that they don't want it to, to bleed into the season. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this all plays out over the next few weeks. Sam brings up a good point, and I don't want to spend too much time on it because I still want to do pitching and the center field dilemma. But something that we uh, rarely have ever brought up in the conversation regarding Michael Conforto is, in fact, his agent, Scott Forrest. I'll leave it at that. Rich, pick it up. Well, at the end of the day, the client makes a decision, right? Not the not the um, agent, but we know Boris's MO players should sign in their, in their walk. Gary believes that, you know, if a player, obviously a quality player should always test the market and you know you have to say that's probably not a bad strategy. Why would you limit yourself to one suitor when you can have many suitors right now as Met fans, we don't want to hear that with Conforto. I do think signing Conforto long-term should be a top priority signing Conforto and Lindor um, long-term I think should be the priorities, but with, Boris there and Boris in his ear saying, you know, Michael, if nothing else, we could use other teams to drive the Mets price up. 
I mean, the Mets have a challenge there. You know, they do. It's a factor. It's a real thing. You know, Boris representing Conforto, a homegrown Met, popular Met guy who's really coming into his own. And now that he's in his late 20s, you know, is really in his prime. You want this guy to stick around. Um, Having Boris there is a real thing that has to be reckoned with. So, hey, you know, Sandy, is. this is not his first rodeo. And um, hopefully he has the wherewithal to get this done. But, yeah, you know, if you look at it, right, think about what, what's going on here. We just talked about the Tatis contract and the impact it has on signing Lindor. You've got Boris, who will be a factor in bringing back Conforto. You know, the Mets have, and, and just to mention the dollar figures, the Mets have some challenges to overcome to retaining these players. And um, you just have to hope Sandy's up for it. We know that Cohen's got the wallet, but you have to hope that Sandy – has the appetite to do it and, and does so wisely. I mean, I think there, there are a lot of challenges coming up after this season. Look at Stroman. You know, Stroman, like him or not like him, I happen to like him. Right now, he's your number two or number three starter. This is another guy who, at, at the end of the season, can walk. I mean, you, you could be losing enormous pieces of this team after this season. And can you bring them all back? I don't know. Do they all want to come back? I don't know. So, you know, there's some, there are some there's some choppy water ahead. Ernest, we know that Boris is about elevating the market. If the Alaskan Malamutes offer him more money, he will tell Conforto to pack his bags for Alaska. That's his that's been his standing operating procedure. <laughs> what say you? I mean, that is that's what he's known for. And it doesn't and well, he also said some things in the past, and then it seemed like, well, he, does, he may not feel that way anymore under a uh, Cohen ownership. Now, I don't know if that means that everything is wonderful now, and now he can't wait to have all of his players sign with the Mets. Uh, that'll be determined later. Although, can something like can, can there be a Cohen effect that will allow now rather than wait for the whole season to end? I mean, it's going to be an interesting dynamic because, again, it also still explains what the Mets are doing because, yeah, you're not going to be able to re-sign on all these guys. But then now also, like we're saying, there aren't a bunch of, you know, MLB top 100 prospects at all these positions ready to take over for them. So when you have Stroman's going to be gone already, uh, even David Peterson, we're hoping he has a good year, obviously. So, we don't really know for sure where he's going to end up in the rotation, what's the best spot for him. So the question marks are going to keep changing. And, you know, Boris, it's going to be his job to take advantage of that, obviously, especially since you see the top five free agents, apparently. They all seem to be rumored to the Mets and then sign elsewhere. And we're like, wow, what a contract. So it doesn't necessarily mean they've all used the Mets, but maybe they have. And uh, you know Boris is going to do it. It's going to happen. Inevitably, it seems that's the road we're headed. Uh, anyway, let's talk about center field. Let's start wrapping this up. Center field, we went from having a need to becoming somewhat of a quagmire with Brandon Nimmo, Alomar, uh Why am I spacing on the name? Rich, help me. We just signed uh, it. Albert Alamara and Pilar. Right, right, and Kevin Pilar. Uh, the Kevin Pillar signing, the acquisition, a little bit confusing to me. What's the angle here? 
So, Rich, I'll let you pick it up center field. I don't get it, Mike. Um, I don't get it at all because you brought in Almora, and then it seemed like the plan was it was pretty obvious. Unless there's another signing or trade, Nimmo plays against right-handed pitching. Almora goes in for defense. Almora plays against left-handed pitching. Maybe sliding Nimmo to left, maybe not. Dom Smith in left, okay. That seemed like the plan. I don't like that plan. I think Dom Smith in left and Nimmo in center, you've got, you are extremely below league average in both positions defensively. And yes, I know that they both are very good offensive players, but come on, you can't have center and left field being, I mean, league average is okay. Extremely below is not okay. And, and so, okay, that seemed like the plan. I don't get the Pilar signing at all. I mean, because now, Pilar is a more veteran version of Almora. And one thing to keep in mind, Pilar's defense, and we we all see the ESPN highlight things with him flying all over the place in center field. He's been below average statistically the last two seasons in center field. So actually Almora is a better defensive center fielder now. Um, Pilar has been playing more of the corner position. So what are they doing? I I don't know. I mean, did you bring Pilar in for center field defense? Well, if you did that, you already had Almora, who's better at defense than Pilar. So what are you doing with Pilar? Do you want them both on the roster? Well, now I'm hearing well, but, you know, Almora has an option. What? You sign this guy as a free agent to put him in Syracuse? That doesn't make sense either. I'm sorry. Um, and, and even if you do that, like I said, you're putting the better defender. If you're saying you want defense, you're putting the better defender in Syracuse. Mike, I have no answer. I'm stumped. The only <laughs> thing I can say is there's got to be other stuff coming because Sandy, you know, he's an intelligent man. The, the current construct of what's going on in center field, both defensively and with the, the names and the, the weird pieces not fitting together makes no sense. So the only thing that would make sense to me is that there's another move coming. That That's the only thing I could say. Uh, you know, I'd agree with you because the big picture, man, it's somewhat confusing. And, and Sam, you know, at first I thought that Elmore and Nimmo would, you know, uh, establish maybe a platoon. Maybe Nimmo gets most of the time. Uh, maybe not. But Kevin Pillar is, is a hockey stick in the spokes. So, Rich, do you think, like, the type of move that would have Brandon Nimmo on his way out of town? Well, I hope not. I mean, I, I, but, you know, what, I, what move would it be? I mean, would you send Pete, you know, the right thing to do? I'm sorry. The right thing to do is to find a, an American league team that wants Pete Alonzo. I love Pete Alonzo. I love the home runs. I love the, the, the personality. But you know damn well, for the good of this team, it, it's better to have Dom Smith at first. Not You get his bat in the lineup. You get better defense. You have a better outfield that way. And, yes, I know the DH is likely coming next year. I don't know. I, 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 I want to see Dom Smith at first base. I wish, uh, well, if the DH were here, I hate the DH, but if it were here, it would solve the problem. But, um, yeah, I don't know, Sam. I, 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 can't, part, I can't piece this one together. <laughs> I really can't. <laughs> well, so it, it seems as if, you know, like, I, I, I don't want to pretend to be, like, in a Kevin Pillar uh, expert here, but I do remember how he was almost like, like a folk hero at the beginning of his career with the Blue Jays, and, and his bat never held on. Uh, but I guess, according to here, it's Albert Elmora, 
Kevin Pillar, Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto, Dominic Smith in terms of the outfield depth chart. Throw McNeil in there. Throw Davis in there as just pieces that you can also pencil in. Then, yeah, they're pretty set. And, and who's that, uh, the Syracuse Mets former major leaguer that they signed, Mike, uh, for depth? I'm totally spacing on his name, but he he um he's one of those you know hey you could have lightning in a bottle type signings anybody? Well, I'll give the floor to Ernie. Let me take a quick look at the roster here. I'm well, I mean, who else is there? They have Heredia, and they have a but they have other corner outfielders like signing Jose Martinez, who can technically play. Jose Martinez. Yeah, we are. We're yeah, but even Martinez, we're we're still. We seem to be talking about a whole lot of corner outfield guys, and then a first right. baseman playing left field. So yeah, that. Right. My concern is that okay, without a DH, and I'm not starting Pilar over Nimmo for any circumstance. So if you have Nimmo in center, Dom in left, and JD Davis at third base, um, that's going to drive a lot of people crazy. So as far <laughs> as the metrics and everything else, so it. That's why, but we don't. But what is what is there to be? Because the thing about Brandon Nimmo, everybody loves Brandon Nimmo, but amongst a lot of these group of guys that we're talking about, if we don't kind of talk about Conforto because we know he's the free agent, but then the year after that, you know, Nimmo's coming up anyway. So I I don't know if this is a conspiracy theory of well, hey, this could be the time to move a guy who might be at the height of sorts of his value when he still has another couple of years of control. Um, but I wouldn't think smaller signings like uh, Almora and, uh, and Pilar would mean moving him unless, again, there was a monster other move in the works. I mean, do you want to move a Nimmo for a, a third baseman, even with the guys in the farm? But, again, all the farm guys, Vientos, Beatty, some power bats who hopefully stick at third because, God forbid, they have to move over to first, and we're going to be having a whole bunch of first basemen. Uh, I don't know if it translates to that type of theory, but – if you can move a guy like Nimmo for a big arm or a third baseman, could that be the secret scary move that no one sees coming? But other than that, I, how much depth do you need? Yeah, you sign Almora for Syracuse, but Pilar is your defensive replacement. He's your Marisnik. I mean, I, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense um, to do that because at least Marisnik, you know what's happening defensively. So it, it's a weird decision like everyone's been saying. And, Mike, before you, you go on, I'll just finish it with this. I don't think Sandy Alderson's, like, an overly emotional guy when it comes to having attachment to his players. But when you, like, think about it, um, the success of Dominic Smith and Brandon Nimmo emphasize his era, his initial Mets era. And you wonder how that factors into play when thinking about putting this roster together. Sure, I don't begrudge him. Uh, it's just very curious. And, you know, we're not in the meeting room. We're not sitting in uh, in, in the think tank. So, you know, uh, there's certain parts of this equation that might be escaping us. It's just curious. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Uh, let's see if we can wrap this up. We'll move into our final segment, starting pitching. And I will start from the bottom and move up. I don't mean that pejoratively. But in the first segment, let's handle Jordan Yamamoto, Joey Lucchesi, and David Peterson. And the first question I'm going to ask you gentlemen is, explain to me how the Mets are better off with Joey Lucchesi and Jordan Yamamoto versus last year's combo of Michael Walker and Rick Porcello. 
Rich. Well, you know, I think with Waka and Porcello, they had to move on. I think both were so bad that it, they just, I think they owed it to them. I, I just don't think you can bring those guys back in good conscience. So it might be that as much as anything else, that, it, that you, you look at what lack of production you got from both of them, and it was time to go in a different direction. Um, and so Lucchese, you know, you have a very different situation. You have a young guy there, um, a guy who certainly has not put it together. He had a good year, a 19, a decent year, and then a, not so well last year. So, But young guy, okay. With Waka and Porcello, you were going with veterans who, you know, Waka's case had had a, a long injury history. And in Porcello's case, had just been a Jekyll and Hyde. You know, he had been good year, bad year, good year, bad year, and he's coming off a bad year. Now he also has come off two bad years, counting last year. So I think the strategy has changed, Mike. I think it's more a question of, you know, let's go with like Yamamoto and the Casey. You know, let's go with some younger guys, see what they could do, take that particular route. And I really, really believe you just couldn't pass the red face test if you brought back either one, Walker or Porcello, because they were so bad. And I think they just had to go in a different direction. And the direction they happened to choose is going with, you know, a collection of younger guys to see what might stick. Ernest, uh, when I host, I like to play the role of contrarian and naysayer. That's why I take a negative approach, because it's answers like Rich's and the answer you're about to give us uh, that makes Met fans feel much better about themselves and their team. So pick it up. And don't forget to include David Peterson, please. <laughs> yeah, I got to be the positive uh, spin. <laughs> I'm going to try my best here. Uh, I mean, okay, I'll, you know what? Let me, uh, for the guys like Lucchese, he's he's had a couple of good years in the majors. So when you see some of his numbers, a guy whose the strikeouts have been high uh, for 18, 2018, 2019, he had some pretty good years, even the ERAs being in the four-ish range. Uh, but will they kind of make him more of a swing starter? But, again, him and Yamamoto, they, these are two guys you're getting, again, who have the option. Porcello and Waka come in here with their incentives and their $10 million and $5 million plus everything else. That's it. They're on the active roster no matter what happens. Uh, but, again, this is the thing now. When you, when you want to add depth rather than the names, uh, you – these are the things they're going to fall into. So the Mets obviously are making a decision. Uh, they're probably still trying to figure out other moves because, again, you have Noah Syndergaard who hopefully you want him to be healthy and remain for the rest of the year once he gets here. So these guys could either be in a bullpen or they could just be put in, in AAA. That's what you can do. You can't do that with Waka and Porcello. Now, for me, with David Peterson, uh, my concern you know, a few years ago was that his fastball was pretty much like 90, 91 miles an hour. Uh, he was still working towards things in the low minors. So when he was in A ball, he was having some up and down years. There were even some talk about that normal dead arm thing you always talk about for guys, especially out of college, a year or two in. Uh, he might have had a minor knee thing going on. So when you, what you saw in the majors, when you have David Peterson throwing 93, 94 miles an hour, that – that's what excited me the most uh, about the entire rotation or what we could have of it in 2020. So for someone like David Peterson and for Marcus Stroman, 
if you can have a defense behind them, uh, I'm excited about what they can do during the course of the year. I like Peterson as the SP4, SP5, one way or another, though. Um, but I do still like Peterson. I honestly do. I've asked him some stuff over the years. I was an Anthony Kay fan back in the day. He's now with the Blue Jays. Um, but Peterson can be a solid guy. The K numbers can be good, especially with the velocity being a, a few ticks higher now, which is something he would have had in college. He brings back 93, 94 miles an hour. Peterson is a guy you could probably hopefully look to rely on. But, again, I'm not, I don't know about that, like, stardom frontline guy. So what we're to, all these names that we're doing, we're talking about the back-end rotation guys and the depth, which you still need. It's better than having whatever Tommy Malone's and whoever else is going to spot start here and there. So I just like the options better overall right now from the starting five, counting hopefully Noah in June. And then as the season inevitably occurs with certain stuff, I like the idea of these guys coming in with good stuff, age, and controllability. Sam, what say you? Miguel Batista for the win when it comes to the <laughs> Tommy Malone. Um, I, so just real quick to touch on what I think has already been said many times. I think with Lu, Lucese and um, help me with the name. <laughs> Yamamoto. Like, Jordan Yamamoto. Yamamoto, right? I think both of it, it's just like what uh, we've been saying, is that it was basically potential – versus what could have been. And that, that is Porcello and Waka, what they represented, is that you knew that, that they, had the, they had the potential for greatness, but unfortunately that greatness got left behind years ago. Right now, you know, they have options, and we can see what, what can possibly transpire. With Yamamoto, it uh, certainly maybe a change of, of scenery could help, um, he's been with the Marlins a few years now. I forget exactly what deal he came over on. But with, with Peterson, one of the things that I was really I really appreciated about Peterson this year was his poise. It does seem that he's never ne- necessarily going to project as up there right behind Jacob deGrom. But he definitely seems to me like he's the type of pitcher that can spot start game three of the division series and throw one of the best pitching games you've ever seen in the history of your team. Um, I, I, I just, he, he gives me that type of feeling that, that almost like that Madison Bumgarner type stuff where you're never going to see brilliant, brilliant numbers, but, you know, especially with, with Madison Bumgarner, the reputation that he took into the regular season all the time as an ace was because he was, you know, one of the greatest pitchers in the history of, of the postseason. And, but if you look at his, his regular season numbers, they're rather pedestrian compared to how great he could be in the postseason. So that's something that excites me about Peterson is that poise. And, and you know, Ernest can talk so much more to the actual dissection of the numbers with that. But just from, like, if I'm going old school eye test alone, that guy was just ready the day that he signed up for the majors. So, um I, I'm much more excited about the culture change and what that means for all these little details going forward. Because as we've seen, that was like the number one thing. So many of these players and so many within 
the organization needed was just this culture change. And, and we could have done wonders with the Wilpons. So uh, one way or another, I'm excited to see what this pitching looks like, especially as the offense has finally caught up to what we were hoping it would call, catch up to in 2016. You're listening to a Metsian podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike. And our guest this evening is writer, reporter, and analyst Ernest Dove. Sir, uh, we're down to Carlos Carrasco and Marcus Stroman. And I will say this. These two individuals are the main keys in the Mets' 2021 quest for postseason glory. Although both have yet to firmly establish themselves in the National League, their prospective pitching performances have the potential to either make or break the upcoming season. It's no stretch to say that the Mets can still get by should one or the other falter. However, the Mets will not survive substandard performances from both. Ernest. They, they have to. They have to be really good. I don't know. Do you want to call them all stars? Do they have to be labeled that way? But, but even again, even like Rich was just saying, I mean, even if you just put Carrasco and Stroman in the actual 2020 rotation, I mean, they, they make the playoffs, don't they? I just, we, we have to really look at the rotation for what it is. It can still be a really good rotation. And if you believe in David Peterson, like I said, I, I have to be a believer. You know, I still like his pitching, especially at the back end of the rotation. He's a guy that's going to get you strikeouts. He's going to give you some ground balls, which is why it feels up to me. I'd have Luis Guillorme always starting whenever Stroman and Peterson take the mound. Uh, Carrasco is more of the strikeout guy. But even against Stroman, I don't know. Some of the Ks were up anyway when he was briefly with the Mets. So with some of the exciting things that he's talking about on his own, about what he wants to do for this season, if him and Carrasco, again, you put them on the 2020 team, they're obviously a lot better than they were. The offense, everybody returned. So Carrasco and Stroman with the Grom, with Peterson, just being the back-end guy, having Noah, I just – but I do, I do see them as the keys. I was actually seeing Matt as one of the keys to the entire season if they were going to have him in the rotation one way or another forced – so now that he's no longer there, it becomes, is Stroman an all-star? Is Carrasco going to pitch to his level? I mean, you have to consider them one of the top teams if uh, they both pitch to their potential because at least the potential is there. We can definitely see it. This isn't Porcello and Waka in Dreaming. So Carrasco is more established. Uh, Stroman is more established. We can't get into the other nonsense and here and there and 2020 and you know, 2019 being short-lived. If they both pitch to their potential, that's why you can see the projections of 95, 96-plus wins by the Mets having a lot to do with them in the rotation. Rich, I'm going to throw this out there as well. A couple of stats, and I'll go through them slowly. But this is in regard to Marcus Stroman and his repertoire. From 2014 through 2018, uh, insofar as his repertoire, he utilized his fastball 54.4 percent. In 2019, he utilized his fastball 39.4 percent. 
From 2014 through 2018, he utilized his slider 15.5%. In 2019, he utilized the slider 2%. Moving on to the cutter. From 14 through 18, he utilized his cutter 11.6% of the time. And in 2019, that increased to 24% of the time. And lastly, from 14 through 18, on average, he threw his curveball 11.4% of the time. And in 2019, he threw it 29.7% of the time. And of course, last year, he opted out. So 2019 was his last season on the mound. That is a radical change in repertoire. Five years versus one. Take it away, Rich. Well... You know, Mike, when you look at Stroman, Stroman's career, right? He came up in 2014, 11 and 6. 4 and 0 in 2015, he had an injury, obviously. 9 and 10 in 2016, 13 and 9. So, what, what I'm driving at here is basically he's 51 and 47 over his career. So, he, he's a great guy. He's great on Twitter. He's animated. He's enthusiastic. Seems to be a great clubhouse guy. Truth is, he's been a 500 pitcher, right? And and so, it's hard to look at, at what you've said and say, okay, he did change his pitching repertoire, changed his arsenal, the way he uses his pitches in 19, but the results weren't incredibly different. You know, in 19, he was six and 11 with Toronto, four and two with the Mets, which is not all that different than what I said. You know, 11 and six, four and 0, oh, nine and 10, 13 and nine, four and nine, 10 and 13. He's kind of been up and down. So, so here's how I take it. Pitches he has used, one mix has been any more effective than another. I think he's still trying to sort it all out is what it comes down to. He clearly, he, he has, you know, the cutter's a good pitch for him. The slider's a good pitch for him. He's not overpowering. Uh, thinking fastball's good for him. You know, like Ernest said, you want to have your, your good infield defense out there when he's on the mound. It just seems to me that because of the fluctuation in his success levels, that, you know, I look at his whips. His whips are generally, well, his career whip is almost 1.5. So here's a guy who has good pitches. You know, he, he changed the mix in 19, but nothing really changed in terms of his overall success on the mound. So what I'm saying is with Hefner having a chance to work with him, it's just going to be a matter of harnessing his, he throws a lot of different pitches harnessing that, finding the right mix, working you know, with a new voice, new pitching coach, to try to find the appropriate mix of pitches, that to me is where he is, as opposed to he found some magic potion, some magic combination, because certainly he hasn't. Look at the numbers. I'm a big fan of the curveball, by the way, over a slider. But Sam, what say you? Well, running with the Stroman idea, it, it does seem like he is a, a student of the game of pitching, the, the art of pitching, if you will. And that might play into everything we're talking about with these percentages regarding the, the, uh, the pitchers, the pitches. And like Rich just said, that he's still adjusting, he's still working it, it through. Um, you know, maybe why don't we call it the Bauer effect? He's going into, you know, he, he 
after opting after op- opting out of 2020, he decided to go the easy route and build his value back up for a potentially longer term deal. So we could be seeing the best Strowman has ever been because we do see that a lot of times with certain free agents. Uh, you know, for the first time uh, after six years. I mean, like even Adrian Beltre had the greatest year of his career last in his last uh, year with the Dodgers before, you know, really taking it to the Hall of Fame. Um, so that could be what we're looking at here is just him trying to do all he can to get the best payday that he possibly can do. Although, you know, $18.6 million in the bank ain't, ain't so bad. Um, and I don't know enough about Carrasco, but I, I can tell that he's been one of the most consistent, uh, consistently excellent pitchers over the last few years, uh, not to mention surviving cancer. Uh, so this guy's a workhorse, this guy's a bulldog, and he's a perfect veteran presence on, uh, you know, a, a, a starting rotation that's a veteran, but, you know, it, it's, you know, when you got Peterson, when you got uh, Lucchese, like we were saying, it's starting to trend younger than it used to be. So, you know, all of a sudden, Jacob deGrom is the elder statesman here, um, I, uh, other than Carlos Carrasco. So it's it's going to be really interesting to see the way this starting rotation comes together. Let's take a closer look at Carrasco for a second, and then we'll get into our final word and call it a night. Carlos Carrasco, uh, yeah, he projects her power. Now, it was in 20, 2019, towards the end of the 2019 season, that he was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia, which is a cancer that affects the blood. Uh, But with medication, he's been in remission for over a year now. Uh, Last year, he was 33 years old. And he posted a 2.91 ERA and a 10.9 strikeout per nine innings pitched average over 68 innings. Now, the only real question I have, and, and throughout, that episode, and even with medication, his his strikeouts never decreased. His velocity never decreased. So I, I think that says a lot for him. The only thing I would question, considering that he was diagnosed towards the end of 2019 and last year was a compromised season all around, the only thing I would question is his stamina. Otherwise, you know, he's going to be 34, but he seems craftier than ever. So, Rich, I'll let you pick it up, and if there's any outstanding issues you want to bring up, by all means. No, I, I think Carrasco is um, – I, I don't have his numbers exactly in front of me right now, but I know when um, he was comeback player of the year, I think it was in 17 or maybe 18. Um, and, you know, like Ernest said and like you said, Mike, the Carrasco and Stroman represent 40% of this rotation. Uh, to me, Peterson is kind of locked in in my brain, and I know maybe that I shouldn't say that. He only had 60, a 60-game 60 season, but he certainly looked very good to me. So I'm not so concerned about him. And, of course, you've got DeGrom, and hopefully we have Cindergaard, you know, by, by June. Um, but Carrasco and Stroman, 40% of the rotation, and Carrasco – you know, feel good story. You root for the guy. A lot to like there. A lot to be hopeful about. You know that he he's come back fully from from his his cancer episode. Um, so, I you know I, I don't like to say time will tell, but that's where we are with him. I think um, there's a lot to point to. He's only 33, so he's not you know like a 38 year old guy trying to reclaim his parenting like that. Um, so good reason for hope. I. 
think we have to be fair and say the jury is still out. Like, I don't even say he's a lock, but there's re- reason to be optimistic about him. And the Mets are going to be relying on him. I mean, he's – I'm calling him the number three starter. I'm Stroman number two for now. Um, so, uh, like, um, likewise. So, you know, your number three starter is an important cog in your rotation. And so uh, it, it's, it's a wait and see with him uh, with – Again, like I said, reason for optimism, but not reason for confidence. I'll put it that way. Now, Ernest, uh, Carlos Carrasco, in 2011, he underwent Tommy John surgery, and he missed all of 2012. Naturally, in 2013, he struggled. However, from 2014 through 2018, that five-year period, he posted a 3.26 ERA with 963 strikeouts over 856 innings pitched. That's a horse. And again, my only question would be his stamina. And I'm confident going into the season. Well, I mean, you know, you want to always obviously wish the best of health. So sticking strictly to baseball, the numbers, again, they've been explaining themselves for him. He's a guy that's going to give you the 30 starts a year, uh, pretty consistently when he was, you know, 25, 30 starts a year. We, we honestly still don't know what's going to happen. I'm, I don't really like the weird uh, questions at the press conference about, like, oh, are you open to having openers? I don't know if the Mets are going to start doing any of that stuff. So, um, But even in general, how many innings is everyone going to pitch? Even Stroman at his best. I mean, how many guys are giving you those DeGrom, like, seven-plus innings? So that's going to be where the bullpen thing is, which, of course, now where Lugo is going to hurt that. And everyone has the concerns, obviously, about Gazelman, uh, which seems like 10 years later he's been with the organization. So you could probably go up and down the entire rotation outside of DeGrom and worry about innings. So that's why the bullpen is going to be a factor one way or another, because I don't know how many of these guys are going to be going, you know, what like what seven innings? Can anyone go those like those magical twenty-one outs, as uh, Ron Darling always says? So, I you know I, I don't know. I, I also don't know for sure, but I, I do know the track record, baseball-wise, speaks for itself with him. And then you know it's just it's going to be up to what's that version of a horse looking like? If he can go the two hundred innings, hundred and ninety-two innings in back-to-back years, you know, a couple of years ago. Can he at least give you six good innings? And then we, the bullpen is going to be needed anyway all year long. And that's also why the Mets, hopefully, they've added all these depth guys that are you know, going to be taxi squatted out. They're going to be going back and forth. So the options are going to be there, hopefully. Unless you gentlemen have any outstanding issues or comments or anything you want to get up your chest, I say we move into our final word. Going once, going twice. Sold. Sam, President, Metsian Podcast Operations. The floor is yours. Your final word, sir. Well, uh, first of all, I want to thank Ernest Dub again for joining us this evening. Thank you so much. I'm glad I got to speak with you, uh, albeit briefly. Um, and I, I think that the, the I, I I think that the only two words I'm going to use is tropical heat wave. And and I every time it snows like it does. I like to throw on jazz music, and it, and and one of the songs that came on was Tropical Heat Wave, which always is a fun just juxtaposition to the the glorious winter that uh, I see in front of me, and I think it reminds me of a movie that once kind of 
jokingly played uh, uh, that song while it was snowing, and I forget what movie right now. But, you know, we're, we're getting poured on with snow more than we have had in, I believe it's like 20 years, uh, as baseball is starting to take shape down in Florida once more. And especially with everything we've been through over the last year, to see them getting going, and, and, and it sounds like we're going to be able to have somewhat of a normalcy when it comes to at least the baseball schedule, if not us in the stands, that is such a sight for sore eyes, regardless of how white it, it, it is, the landscape is around me. At least I get to see the green grass down in Port St. Lucie right now. Mr. Ernest Dove, again, I would like to echo Sam's sentiments. Thank you very kindly for joining us on the Metsian Podcast this evening. Your insight uh, off the charts. Thank you so kindly. And I will move to you. Please, one more time, give us a little bio, what you're doing it, where we can find it, and I, I will ask you for your final words, sir. Thank you. No, thank you so much for having me. This was really awesome. Uh, I appreciate it, and I obviously always love talking Mets baseball. Um, you can always catch me on Twitter, at Ernest Dove, E-R-N-E-S-T-D-O-V-E. Hopefully now we'll get some actual baseball going all season long, especially in the minors. Uh, I'll be having my YouTube channel, hopefully having some videos of it. Uh, also, again, because of who I am, I always want to shout out to all the Mets uh, minor leaguers out there who are working so hard. Even right now, the non-roster invites, I've heard so many good things about it already for the first couple of days. And ever since Cohen and new ownership took over, a lot of the guys in the minors are really excited about the Mets organization now more than ever. They felt there's always been good coach, coaching up and down the minors. I just they're now more excited than ever because now they want to be on a World Series contending team. But shout out to them, fighting for their dreams in camp, and yet they're all students of the game. They're they're supporting each other even through the workouts. So shout out to all Mets minor leaguers out there. Um, and just again, it just I feel lucky to even be on the show. I'm just thankful for it, and I just uh, I'm looking forward to actually Mets baseball games really soon. And then you can continue to watch me on a. Uh, or listen to me on the sports report every Saturday uh, about 5 p.m. Eastern time, and even 10 p.m. UK for all the UK fans out there that are listening in to the sports report on sportinarium.com. Rich, the floor is yours. Uh, Mike, my last word is excited. You know, I think a lot, a lot of baseball fans are when pitchers and catchers report, and you know that there will be games um, on games being played uh, next Sunday, so that's only 10 days away. Um, it's just ironic. The Mets play a game 11. They don't, I think there are only two teams not playing on Sunday and the Mets are one of them. So the Mets don't play on Monday the first, but 10 days from now, there will be games on television. MLB network has a full slate that day. Um, and so it, it's a hopeful time of year. It's, it's going to be great to watch baseball on TV. We didn't know if it was going to start on time. We didn't know if it was going to start at all, you know, for, for that, for that matter, a couple of months ago. So it's here. I'm excited. I think the Mets are in good shape, and, and let's go. I want to say thank you. Thank you to you guys uh, for setting my mood. I'm so excited for Mets baseball this season. I had such a blast uh, talking Mets baseball with you guys this evening. And uh, looking forward to games, as Ernest says, and uh, getting baseball underway. But I'm most interested to see how spring training plays out. So, uh, again, thank you. Thank you, because uh, I had a really fun time this evening. 
So, Sam, as I'm making it my tradition, instead of closing out the show myself, I hand it back to you. Take us home. Well, thank you, Mike, and thank you all out there for listening. The only way to finish this is let's go Mets. Take care, everybody. Thanks again, Ernest. Good night, all. Thanks, Ernest. Thank you. Take care, everybody.